Matthew chapter 3. We continue our new sermon series going through Matthew's gospel. And we come to a very uh, important figure in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the one who went before him, uh, the one sometimes known as John the Baptist. Sometimes I hear people call him John the Baptizer. You don't want our Baptist brethren getting the wrong idea like John was the first Baptist. Uh, He was not. He was the first Presbyterian, of course. We all know that. So (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We read this morning about John the Baptist and how he prepared the way for Jesus. And we learn from John, what does it look like to shake the world? And what does it take to speak prophetically to a generation? In many ways, John lived in a time not unlike our own, a time of corrupt politicians, a time of an ineffective apostate church, a time in which uh, things looked pretty dire, and it didn't look like there was a lot of hope for change in the world. And then on came John the Baptist with a message from God, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, a message that effectively said, God himself is coming, and you need to get ready. We learn from John, what does it mean to speak prophetically in our generation today? And what does it look like to be faithful to the gospel? Matthew chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll read this morning through verse 12. Reading and preaching from the New King James Version, follow along in whatever translation you have available to you. Brothers and sisters, give your attention. These are the very words of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, He said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God now add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word among us. Well, in case you hadn't checked your mailbox or turned on your TV recently, we are in the midst of a political season in our country. Local politics, national politics are on the forefront of our minds. Uh, I know I'm kind of sick of getting all of the different mailers from all of our different local and state politicians making all kinds of promises and pledges to me. Uh, the first promise maybe I'd want them to keep is stop sending me so much mail. Please, please stop overflowing my mailbox with all of these newsletters and notices. Anytime we're in a political season in this country, we're faced with uh, one of the fundamental questions that the Bible deals with, and that is, 
Who are the primary movers and shakers in a society? Where is real power to be found in the world? Who is it that sets the real agenda for a people and nations and the world itself? If you read some of those notices that your politicians are sending you, you would get the impression that in the realm of politics is where you would find that kind of power. That the real movers and shakers and influencers in a society are to be found in the halls of government, the local and the state and the federal level. Do we not often put our hope in politicians around this time? As if somehow if we could just get the right men or women into positions of power, uh, then somehow they would be able to enact real and lasting change for us as a people. We think that way, don't we? It's the way you're thinking about this year's presidential election, isn't it? You're thinking if we can just get the right guy into the Oval Office, everything will be better, right? Politicians aren't nothing. They do have some level of power and influence. But if you paid attention to the history of our country, even, you would see that the real movers and shakers in any people are not the politicians, but rather the prophets. The prophets are those who set the tone for a society and a people, and the politicians only follow in their wake and try to enact legislation that matches with what the prophets have desired. I was reminded of this as I prepared this sermon, uh, the old Bob Dylan uh, change anthem, right? The times they are a changing. Some of you maybe were alive when that song came out. But in that song, Dylan is talking about this fact that in the, the mid-60s there, the times were changing. And who was changing them? Well, it wasn't the politicians. The third verse, he says, Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside raging will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times, they are a-changing. Bob Dylan understood this. He understood that the people who were driving the culture in the mid-60s were not in Washington, D.C. It wasn't the congressmen. It wasn't the senators. Effectively, he was just telling them, uh, the real changers are coming. You better just stay out of the way or get on board. Otherwise, you might get crushed under this juggernaut. The real movers and shakers in a society have never been the politicians. We saw it this morning in our Old Testament reading. The prophet going to the politician, chastising him for his sin, condemning him for his murder of, of Naboth, his unjust acquisition of a piece of property that he desired but could not have. And what happens in the end? Ahab is humbled, isn't he? Whether his humility is sincere or not, we're not told. Ahab does not have a track record of godliness. But the reality is that in that moment, when that struggle happens between the prophet and the politician, the one who wins by God's power is the prophet. So maybe we ought to learn from this that if we want to see real change in the world, uh, we ought not start with those who simply follow in the wake of the changers and the movers. Maybe we ought to remember that the real changers of any society are the prophets. It's no different today. We have prophets in this country. Uh, we don't call them prophets. They don't act quite like prophets, but we have them. They're in Silicon Valley. They're in Hollywood, New York City. Uh, I would argue that based on her fanfare alone, Taylor Swift is one of our national prophets today for all that that tells you about our country. 
But that's the reality. She's one of our prophets. She's a prophet of the American civil religion, of entertainment. Godless self-indulgence. That's our religion, and she's one of our prophets, probably our most famous one right now. You can tell who the prophets are in a culture because they're the ones who set the tone by what they say and what they do. There's a reason that the politicians so often want to get the entertainers and the actors on their side because those are the real movers and shakers. And, and they know if I can just get a Taylor Swift endorsement, my election is secured because her fans will do essentially whatever she tells them to or shows them. So the prophets have always been those who make the biggest lasting changes in the world. And it was no different in the time of Christ. It was no different for John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a prophet. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's arguably one of the greatest. In fact, Jesus himself will say that among all the prophets who have, have arisen, none of them is greater than John the Baptist. Of all the men who've been born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist, and yet the one who is born into God's kingdom is greater than John. John came as a prophet. We read this morning about Elijah, the prophet. John comes in the same spirit as Elijah. If you would go to the end of your Old Testament, so I'll not ask you to turn there, but you could check it out later if you'd like. The last of the Old Testament books is the prophet Malachi. And at the end of his prophecy, Malachi gives the people of God a cliffhanger. He's writing roughly 400 years before Christ comes on the scene. He's one of the last prophets. In fact, time-wise, he may be the last prophet to speak before a, a period of roughly 400 years of silence from God, where God does not speak through prophets. God no longer reveals new truths about himself through sacred scriptures. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes on the scene. God gets back to work and keeps speaking again. But at the end of the prophet Malachi, he gives this promise. The Lord speaking through Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. People of Israel, if you've read your Gospels, you know they're looking for that, right? Where's Elijah? When's he coming back? He was taken up in the whirlwind and God said he's coming back. Where is he? Well, we know from the New Testament witness that John is that man. He is not the same person as Elijah. It's not like a, a reincarnation of Elijah. But he comes in the same spirit as Elijah. He comes in the same role as Elijah. He's even described in the same way. If you went back and looked at uh, 2 Kings 1, verse 8, even the way John is described in his appearance points back to Elijah and his appearance. Elijah was a hairy man, we're told. John the Baptist is covered in camel hairs. Elijah is explicitly identified as wearing a leather belt around his waist. John the Baptist wears a leather belt around his waist. Both men are kind of wild woodsman-y types. John is a wild woodsman type. He lives out in the wilderness. John comes in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. And although he has no political power, the power that he does bring through the word of God shakes his world and establishes a way for the coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to consider this morning John the Baptist, and I first want to consider his practice. We'll consider his practice, his preaching, and his purpose today in the time we have together. First, I want to consider with you the practice of John. What does it take to be a prophet according to God's word? Well, first of all, we learn from John's example that simplicity of life, 
is essential to have an effective prophetic ministry. John is described as a rugged man. Y'all, go, go back. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4. Listen to how John is described. John himself is clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. What is his diet? Food was locusts and wild honey. He eats bugs out in the wilderness. Whatever honey he can find, sort of cultivated out in the wild by wild bees, he, he eats. You get the impression that John is the kind of man who, who never cooks anything. He just sort of eats as he goes, whatever he can find out in the wilderness. He's rugged. He probably looks pretty unkempt. His hair is long. He probably doesn't smell all that great. He's probably a little bit dirty. And he looks wild. He's covered in camel skins and hair. And he's eating bugs and honey. And that's, that's how he lives his life. But he's simple. And his simplicity becomes his strength. He's undistractable, you might put it that way. He's, he's a man of single focus. He has one goal in life. And everything else is secondary. Jesus later will speak about him in Matthew. He'll ask the people, the Jews, about John the Baptist. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Some weak little pansy man who breaks at the slightest breeze? No, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man clothed in soft garments? Jesus said those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. That's not who John was. John didn't know how to exist in the royal court. He was too unkempt for that. He lived a simple life. He lived a separated life, too. If you know the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist is the son of a priest. He has a role that should have been given to him in Jewish society. He would have followed his father, Zechariah, into the priesthood. And yet, we never read about him doing that. He shuns the priesthood. And he even shuns the city of Jerusalem with its temple. John was a separated man. The apostasy of the Sadducees and the man-made religion of the Pharisees, John said, I'll have nothing to do with that. And I will declare my separation from it even in how I choose to live. He doesn't conduct his ministry in Jerusalem. He doesn't preach in the temple. He calls everyone to come out of the city to him in the wilderness. And it's there that he says, I will do my ministry. He's a separated man, refuses to participate in the apostasy of his time. John's a steadfast man. He's unshakable. He's the kind of man that I'd like to be as a pastor. He's the kind of man who, even when his life is in jeopardy, refuses to compromise on his message. He refuses to stop speaking truth, even when it costs him his life. When King Herod, the local politician, was engaging in a sexually immoral marriage to Herodias, who may have been his niece and certainly was his dead brother's wife, John took him to task for it. Not for John was this impression that somehow preachers ought to stay in their lane. Right? We're told that a lot today, preacher. Uh, don't start talking politics. That's not my ultimate job. My ultimate job is not to talk politics with you. But that's not the same thing as saying that the state is somehow existing over here with no influence from God. Often today, we think that the separation of church and state, which is a godly biblical distinction, but we think it means the separation of the, of the state from God. 
Well, that's not true. Our governor does not have the right to come in here and preach the gospel to you. He's not empowered for that. And neither do I have the right to go into uh, up in Raleigh and sort of try to enact legislation. That's not my calling. We have a separation of church and state, but the state is still subject to God. John, without compromise, goes before arguably the most powerful man in his life, King Herod. And he condemns him for his unjust, immoral actions. And it ends up costing him his head. John the Baptist will die for his steadfast refusal to not speak truth. If we're going to be a prophetic voice in our generation today, we have to get this message. We have to understand that this is what's required. This is what it means to be a prophet. Prophets are not those who have luxurious lives. If you want to live the comfortable upper middle class American dream, you are not going to be a prophetic voice in this nation today. You're simply not. You're going to be too distractible because you're, you're obsessed with all the baubles and all the trinkets that American life is trying to throw at you. If you don't live separated, if you're just as worldly as the neighbors around you who don't know Jesus Christ, you're not going to have any influence. Why would they believe you? You're not any different than me. And if we're not steadfast, if we compromise easily for the sake even of our life, that communicates something. It tells people what our real priority is. If we're going to be a prophetic voice in our generation today, we've got to get John the Baptist's example under our belt. A simple life, a separated life, a life that is different than the people around us, and a life that is steadfastly committed to the truth. Well, John didn't just come to be an example. He came as a preacher. And secondly, this morning, I want to consider his preaching with you. John's message is very simple. Uh, things are about to change, right? The times they are a changing is effectively John the Baptist's message. And why is it changing? God is coming. God is showing up. God's kingdom is on its way. And you have got to get ready. In fact, John functions a little bit as kind of a warning voice. You better be ready. God is about to shake everything. He is about to begin the process of reaching down through his son and shaking the whole world. And if you're not ready, you are going to be shaken. John's message was simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John preached repentance. Repentance, even as we saw in our shorter catechism question earlier, repentance is when a sinner sees the ugliness and the danger of their sin and then is led to grief and hatred of that sin. And in their grief and hatred, they turn from sin and turn to God and lay hold on God's mercy in Jesus Christ with the full intention to walk in godliness by God's power. There's a lot of American preachers today that don't want to preach repentance. They'll preach faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, which is true. That's, that's scripture. But the Bible also calls us to repent. Repent from sin. Turn from sin. There's a lot of preachers today that will just tell you, hey, just put your hand up. Walk the aisle. Pray this prayer and you'll be good with God. But even Jesus himself will echo the same message. Jesus doesn't change John's message when he begins his preaching ministry. It's the same message. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You've got to have both. John preached forgiveness of sins. He preached that one who was coming who would bring the remission of sins. Even his baptism was for the remission of sins. Not in Matthew's gospel, but in 
uh, the Apostle John's account in John 1, verse 29, he records John the Baptist's statement when he first sees his cousin Jesus show up on the scene. And he points to him and he says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't just preach repentance. It's not just turn or burn. It's the mercy of God that is coming in his son. The lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Not the lamb of God who comes to hold it over your head. Not the lamb of God who comes to regularly poke you and remind you of your sin. Not the lamb of God who comes to judge and condemn you for your sin. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John preached forgiveness of sins. John is a hard preacher. There's no doubt about it. He's rough around the edges. But his ultimate message is one of God's forgiveness for sinners in Christ. In fact, that's why he's so hostile to the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they come out to him to receive his baptism. These are men who didn't believe they needed forgiveness. They didn't believe that they had heinous enough sins that warranted God's mercy. They thought that they had it figured out pretty well. I'm a righteous person. I'm an upstanding man. I go to church. I pay my tithe. I pray every day. In fact, I'll do even ritual things to show off about how holy and special I am in my faith. I'm righteous. And John says, you don't know the first thing about righteousness. You are, in fact, a brood of vipers. And he's asking them, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? You think you're righteous already. Why are you coming out here? What do you think you need from me? You don't feel like you have sins to forgive. Why would you come to my baptism, which is for the forgiveness of sins? John's fundamental message, repent and receive the mercy of God in Christ. Receive the mercy of God through this Lamb of God who is coming to take away the sins of the world. God's kingdom ultimately means life. Before it means anything else, before it means about our submission to God and how we not to uh, uh, repent and, and fall before him and serve him. Uh, before the kingdom is that, it is first and foremost about you having your sins forgiven. John Calvin put it this way. The kingdom of God among men is nothing else than a restoration to a happy life. Christian, are you happy? Are you happy being in Jesus Christ? Are you happy to be ruled and saved by God? Is it your chief delight to submit yourself to the Lord God, to receive his free forgiveness? Is it your happiness to repent from sin and to receive the mercy that he gives you through Christ? John Calvin's not inspired. He's, he's, he's not like that. But those words are true. The kingdom of God is nothing else than a restoration to a happy life. Sin is misery. Sin is death. And God in Christ Jesus, through his Lamb, saves us from those things. And he restores us to the way things ought to be. Men who were alienated from the righteousness of God and banished from the kingdom of heaven must be again gathered to God and live under his guidance. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. You who were lost wandering sheep, who were running headfirst into destruction, God chose of his free mercy and grace to send his son to come save you and bring you back to lead you in those green pastures, to lead you beside those still waters, to bring life to you again. And then, out of joy and gladness, to live in obedience to him. Don't get those backwards. 
Don't think that somehow your obedience is earning anything from God. He's already given you everything in Christ Jesus. There's, there's nothing more for him to give you than that what he's already given you through his son. You, you cannot get more saved than you are right now today. You cannot, through your own actions, somehow make God any happier with you than he is right now as you stand before him in Jesus Christ. This is, this is what it means to be justified. It means that if I am in Christ, God is supremely pleased with me. And nothing will change that. If I am outside of Christ, God is supremely displeased with me and my sins. John's message is that God's kingdom is coming. That means that a restoration to true joy is coming for those who will receive it. But thirdly, John preached holiness. He didn't stop there. He's not afraid to make application. Sometimes you get a little bothered when Pastor Keith starts making application up here and starts taking what God is teaching in his word and actually applying it to your lives and telling you how to live in light of it. And you go, whoa, pastor, like, stay in your lane here. Why you got to step on my toes like that, right? I'm trying to live life the way I want, trying to do things the way I like. How about you just tell me some useful information, right? Teach me some fascinating doctrines from the scriptures, but don't go telling me how to live. John the Baptist wasn't at all hesitant to tell people how to live. He preached holiness. He said, you've got to turn from your sins and start bearing fruit worthy of repentance. That's what he said in verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And don't think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That was what the Jews constantly claimed. Look, we're Abraham's children. God is obligated to love us. He loved Abraham. We're Abraham's children. Surely he loves me. And John warns them, you don't understand how this works. God is God. He can make sons and daughters of Abraham out of stones. There's nothing uniquely special about you. It's been said, and it needs to be said again, there aren't grandchildren in the kingdom of God. God does not have grandchildren. He only has children. Young people, you're here today. You're covenant children. You are in covenant with God today. But you need to lay claim on these promises for yourself. Christ needs to be your Savior, not just your mom and dad's Savior. God needs to be your God, not just your parents' God. He needs to be your God. And at some point, you need to make that profession of faith for yourself and start walking in those ways for yourself. John preached holiness. He called people to a life that was reflective of what God had done for them. And he preached that this would only be possible through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. He said, I'm baptizing you with water for the remission of sins, but there's a better baptism coming. And the one who brings that baptism will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You can't do this on your own. You can't live a changed life in your own power. You need an external power to be given to you so that you can now live a changed life reflecting the kingdom of God in which you live. And that power can only be found in the Holy Spirit. It's only possible through the fiery baptism of the Holy Ghost that we have through faith in Christ. The message is simple. This is the message that our nation needs today, a message of repentance from sin, a message of the forgiveness of sin in Christ, and a message of a call to holiness of life. One of our purposes as a church, why would, we, why would we want to start another church here in Union County in South Charlotte? There's so many. 
right? Why, why would we want to start a new one? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm tired of living in communities with lots of churches and lots of the form of godliness, but without any of the power of it. Why is it that we can live in communities with churches on almost every corner, and yet our churches are empty on the Sabbath and our baseball fields are full? Why is it that we can live in a city that's called the Queen City, the home of Billy Graham, the home city of, of in many ways, Southern Bible Belt evangelicalism, and yet we have in our city of Charlotte the largest abortion provider in the uh, Southeast United States? How can those two things be held together? Why is it that increasingly in places like Monroe, throughout Union County, you're seeing ungodliness celebrated? Why is it that we're seeing marriages break apart? Why is it that we're seeing families destroyed by drugs and alcohol addiction? How can it be that in a place so full of Christians, there can be so little real gospel Christianity. It's because we've gotten the message wrong. We have forgotten what the truth is. We think that repentance is unnecessary, that forgiveness of sins is freely available, which is true, but we think it means that it doesn't matter then how I live my life. That somehow if my sins are forgiven, I've got my get out of hell free card and I can just go about doing as I please. It's not the message John preached and it's not the message Jesus preached. The kingdom of God means the forgiveness of sins, repentance from sin, and a new life through the Holy Spirit inside of you. A holy life. A life that is full of good fruit. Friends, John gave the warning, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You're not saved by your works, but your works are indicative of where your heart is with God. If we profess faith in Christ, and yet the tree of our life bears nothing but bad fruit. What does that say about my profession? It's false. It's not genuine. Good trees bear good fruit. And that's what God calls us to through his Holy Spirit. Finally, in closing, I want to consider John's purpose with you. John had one sole purpose above everything else, and it was to prepare the way for his Lord Jesus. John was not an end in himself. He was a means to an end. He was preparing the way for Jesus Christ. One of the things that we so often get backwards is that we think that if we want to reach people and change their lives, we need to have them be, be very impressed with us. We have churches in our communities that are obsessed with making sure that people are impressed with me. And so we want high production value. We want preachers that are clean cut, attractive, they look like they've never hit leg day, but man, they've hit arms and chest, right? You want attractive, beautiful, put together, professional. And we think if we have enough of that, we have enough professionalism that somehow we can reach people. But that's a lie. It's not about you and me. It's not about making sure that everybody around you is very impressed with you and your life. John the Baptist, in, in a worldly perspective, is an astoundingly unimpressive man. He lives out in the wilderness. He eats bugs. He stinks. And he dies in a jail cell. He is supremely unimpressive from a worldly perspective. And yet, because God is with him, 
And because of who he is pointing to, he is able to achieve his purpose. His entire life is about exalting Jesus, not himself. It came a point in time when John's disciples saw that the ministry of Jesus and his 12 apostles was growing and even outgrowing John's ministry, and they were offended. They were hurt. Our master John is very important. And so they came to him and they said, Rabbi, the one who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, he's baptizing and everyone's going to see him. Stop him. He, he's stealing your, you know, he's, he's taking your uh, clout here. John, do something. He's stealing your limelight. Don't you know you deserve to be the one in the spotlight? And John says, you don't know who I am. Have you learned nothing from me? You yourselves bear me witness, John said to his disciples, that I said to you, I am not the Christ. That's, that's a, a profoundly helpful Christian confession. I am not the Christ. There's so many ways we could apply that to our lives. You don't want to have people over to your home? Why? Because you think you have to be Christ for them. You think you have to be Jesus for them. I'm not the Christ. I'm pressured all the time as your preacher. Oh, I've got to preach just right. I've got to make sure I say the right thing. I've got to do it in such a way that everyone will receive it and no one will be upset. No, I don't. I'm not the Christ. Neither are you. People don't need me. And they don't need you. They need Jesus. And our role as a prophetic voice in this increasingly dark generation is not to point people to ourselves. It's not to show off what impressive homeschoolers we are. It's not to show them about all of our skills at homesteading. It's not to show them about how they can have a successful life if only they'll just start living like me. It's about pointing away from ourselves and pointing them to Jesus. I'd, I'd encourage you to memorize John 3.30, where John the Baptist says to his disciples, he must increase and I must decrease. I must fade into nothing. I hope that in a hundred years, when I'm dead and gone, Union County has forgotten Keith Ginn. I hope that that's true. But I hope they haven't forgotten Jesus. I hope they haven't missed Christ. And I hope you can say the same. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this good word. Lord, I thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I confess the ways that I have myself sought to exalt Keith and not Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts to give us the spirit of John the Baptist who would prepare the way for Jesus, who would point everybody around us away from ourselves and point us to the only one who's worth paying attention to. Oh Lord, we pray that as our future as a church grows and expands, that in no way, shape, or form would anyone ever be impressed with Trinity Chapel, but that they would be increasingly in awe of Jesus Christ. Do this work through your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us, give us a fresh baptism. Give us a fresh filling of the Spirit of God so that we can go out from here changed and ready to be your prophets in the world today. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.